I want to start with a, a piece of trivia for you this morning, okay? This is interactive. Do you know how many days of Christmas there are? Anyone? Twelve. There are twelve days of Christmas. How about Easter? Anyone know how many days of Easter there are? Forty. There are. Can you imagine that song? On the thirty-ninth day of Easter, my true. If you can figure out before the sermon ends how many birds you would be given in forty days of Easter, if that was a song, text it to the phone because I want to know. I forget, for 12 days of Christmas, it's like 350-something, but text the phone. I want to know how many gifts in 40 days of Easter. So traditionally, the Christian church has said one day is not enough days to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so right now at Grace, we are doing a six-week sermon series focusing on 1 Corinthians 15 as Paul unpacks the resurrection. And so with that in mind, I invite you to turn your attention for the screen for the reading of God's word from Sharon. Our reading today is from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 to 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on the immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Well, some time ago, I heard a story and as I was preparing for the sermon, I was trying to find out if this event actually happened. And I couldn't find any historical evidence. So I'm sorry, you, you might text at the end to say, Graham, your story isn't true. That's okay. It's still a good story. And so I'm going to intro with it. And the story goes like this. During the Great Depression, the military performed a psychological experiment. The military recruited a group of young men who were unemployed and hired them to go out into the desert to dig holes. And so these guys were taken out into the desert. They worked all day. It was back-breaking work under the scorching sun, digging holes. At the end of the day, they were brought back to town, paid for their efforts, and told, come back tomorrow. We're going to go to a different spot and dig more holes. After a number of days doing this, the researchers interviewed the guys, and they found most of them were relatively satisfied with their work. They were being paid. They didn't exactly know what the purpose of these holes were, but at the end of the day, they could look back and say, it was hard work, but look what we accomplished. There's holes there now. They didn't know what these holes were for, but they knew they were helping the military somehow. Now, unbeknownst to this group of men, 
the military hired a second group. This group was hired, they were taken out into the desert, they were taken to an area and told, see these holes? Fill them up. And so these guys worked all day in the scorching heat, backbreaking work, filling in these holes. At the end of the day, they were taken back to town, paid for their work, and told, come back tomorrow, we're going to fill in some more holes. And what the researchers found was that this second group was also satisfied with their work. They didn't know exactly for what purpose they were doing this, but at the end of the day, they could look back and say, there used to be a bunch of holes here, and now it's nice, flat ground. Now, after a number of days doing this, the two groups were introduced to one another. And it was explained that as the first group went and dug holes, and the next day they'd move on, the second group would come and fill in those holes. And the men were devastated. They were devastated because they realized they had been breaking their backs under the hot sun for no purpose whatsoever. There was no meaning to their work. They were just digging holes and filling them back up. Now, it's interesting because the experiment didn't stop there. The guys were continually invited, come on out, we're going to pay you the same. Nothing changes about your work. But now they knew they were just digging holes and filling them back up. And you know how they reacted? They were miserable in their work. And they started to drop out. Nothing else had changed except the knowledge that their work was utterly meaningless. And you know, I think this story reveals something about us. It reveals that as human beings, we long for our work and our lives to have purpose. We are meaning machines. We long for our work and our lives to have meaning, significance. We want to make a difference. We want to leave a legacy. We want to make a positive change and impact in this world. But that raises the question, do our lives and does our work matter? The great atheist thinker and philosopher Bertrand Russell would answer emphatically, no. Ultimately, your life and ultimately your work have no meaning, no purpose. You are like those groups of guys digging holes and filling them back in. It's a rather hopeless message, but I think it's important for us to look it in the face. And so um, I, I have a quote that, Ryan, I'd like to invite you to come up and read that quote by Bertrand Russell. Okay. No fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Firm foundation of unyielding despair. 
digging holes and filling them back up, digging holes and filling them back up. Eventually, our universe is heading towards heat death, no light, no life, no memory of all the greatest failures and accomplishments of human civilization. The pyramids, the Colosseum, all the wonders of humanity burned up by our expanding sun with no one to remember it. Firm foundation of unyielding despair, Bertrand Russell says. And sadly, in large parts of the Christian church, I would say that Christians present a watered-down version of Russell's unyielding despair. I've heard many Christians say, in effect, that the only work which has lasting meaning and significance is spiritual work. The only work which has lasting meaning and significance is spiritual work. Let me give an example to illustrate this. When I was in my undergrad, no, I had graduated. I was attending a conference for Christians. There was about 150 of us in the room, and the main speaker got on stage, and he looked out at the audience, and he told us that there are only three things which are eternal. God, his word, and the souls of men and women. And the question was then asked, how are you going to invest your life? Now, the implication of that teaching was that if you weren't investing your life in either God, his word, or the souls of men and women, you were wasting your life. If you walked out of that main session and you said, you know, I really do think I'm called to be an accountant, then you'd miss the point. Because the the point, the only work that had lasting significance was the work of a missionary, a pastor, evangelist, church planner, discipler. But thanks be to God that the Apostle Paul comes with a vision of hope. A vision of work that's different from either that of Bertrand Russell or the poor theology I heard at that conference. The Apostle Paul tells us in the passage which was read today that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, your life and your work have meaning. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, your life and your work matter. They have eternal significance. And so let's now turn and look together at Paul's message explaining how our work matters. And this morning, we're going to be focusing in particular on verse 58. So if you have the bulletin or if it's on your phone, feel free to sort of center your eyes on that verse. Verse 58. Therefore, beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This verse begins with the word, therefore. Now, when I was in my undergrad, learning to study the Bible, one of my mentors said to me, when you're studying the Bible, and you come to the word, therefore, you should pause and say, hmm, what do you think that word is there for? It's kind of, <laughs> kind of cheesy, but, but I remember it, so, and now you do too. What is that word, therefore? Well, if, if you walk in on the middle of a conversation— and you hear me talking to my friend, Sharon, and you hear me say, therefore, Sharon, 
make sure you bring an umbrella. Okay? So I've given Sharon advice, bring an umbrella, and you know that that advice is based on what came earlier in our conversation. And the same goes with our passage here. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So Paul gives those exhortations, and they're grounded in what came earlier in the conversation. And what came earlier in chapter 15, Paul was unpacking the theology of the resurrection. Chapter 15 begins with Paul asserting the historical facts. He said, Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. On the third day, he was raised in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to many witnesses. Jesus has been raised. And because Jesus has been raised, Paul says, we too will be raised. The future of Christians is not just to die and have your soul fly up to heaven. The future of Christians is to be raised bodily in this world. That's our ultimate destiny. Because Jesus has been raised, we know with confidence that sin and death will not win. They've been conquered, and they will be vanquished. Because Jesus has been raised, we know that he's going to return to this world. He's going to wipe away every tear. There'll be no more death, no more mourning for the former things have come undone. We know that Jesus is going to make everything sad come untrue. And so, with all of these truths of the resurrection firmly in place, Paul turns and says, therefore, here's how you're to live. You are to be steadfast in the work of the Lord. So, let's now turn and consider what is the work of the Lord, and how can we be steadfast in that work? So firstly, what is the work of the Lord? Well, regarding this question, there's actually two camps of scholars, uh, scholarship. On the one camp, some scholars would say that when Paul speaks of the work of the Lord, he's specifically addressing religious work, church planting, preaching, disciple-making, and so on. However, there's another group of scholars, um, and I would side with this second group, which would say when you look at the context of 1 Corinthians 15, it's a very all-encompassing context. It's talking about the creation of the world, the redemption of the world, the renewal of the world, and the consummation of all things. It's a big, inclusive picture. And so these scholars would say, the work of the Lord is more inclusive than merely religious work. We could also look at a number of other passages from the Bible. I can think of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Colossians 3, verse 17, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. The work of the Lord isn't just religious work. It's not just the work of pastors and evangelists. The work of the Lord are the good things that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. The work of the Lord is partnering with God in Jesus' name to bring blessing 
and life and flourishing to our community and to our world. The great German theologian and reformer Martin Luther said that even the milkmaid and the baker do the work of the Lord. God knows that people need to be provided with healthy and nourishing and delicious food, and so he provides for people through the work of the milkmaid and the baker. They're doing the work of the Lord. Likewise, we could look within our own congregation. We could talk about police officers like Jesse, emergency dispatchers like Vicky, who do the work of the Lord by making our city a safe place to live and ensuring that those who are in crises get the help that they need. We could talk about teachers like Karen, who do the work of the Lord by inspiring curiosity in the minds of children to learn about God's world and teaching every child that they have value. We could talk about artists, composers like Alan or dancers like Lindy, who do the work of the Lord by spreading God's beauty, creating beauty for all of us to enjoy. We could talk about hospital technicians like Pat, who do the work of the Lord by helping medical teams uncover what is the problem and how might we begin treatment. And we could go on and on like this. But you know, if you want to do a deep dive into the question, what is the work of the Lord? I would recommend that you start by looking at the works of our Lord Jesus. If you want to know what is the work of the Lord, look at the works of our Lord Jesus. Jesus honored his father and his mother, the work of the Lord. We know that as a Jewish son in the ancient Near East, Jesus would have spent most of his life here on earth as an apprentice of his father Joseph, which tradition tells us was as a carpenter. And so Jesus spent most of his life working as a carpenter, the work of the Lord. When Jesus began his public ministry, he did many things. He made delicious wine at a wedding, the work of the Lord. He preached the good news of the kingdom of God. He prayed for people. He healed the sick. He comforted the mourning. He invited children to come and be with him. He paid taxes to Caesar. He cooked fish for his friends the works of the Lord. And so I would invite you today, I would invite you today to consider expanding what is your view of the work of the Lord. And I would invite you to wonder, what good works has God prepared beforehand for me to walk in today and this week? Now, this is a pretty lofty vision of the work of the Lord, isn't it? You know, that that each and every one of us, regardless of our vocation, gets to partner with Christ in being the hands and feet of Christ to this world. That we get to partner with God in spreading his kingdom by being a blessing to those around us. It's a very big, beautiful vision. But the fact is, I don't know about you, but often as not, my work doesn't feel that glorious. In fact, often as not, it can feel vain. It can feel like I'm digging holes and filling them back up. I imagine there's some students here. Maybe you haven't had this happen to you, but maybe you have. You wrote a a paper 
um, finished a beautiful paper, you're very proud of it, only to be met with a blue screen of death. And that paper's gone. You didn't save it to the cloud. Feels like you dug a hole and filled it back up. It feels vain. I imagine there are some parents here, and perhaps last night at 2 a.m., you were in the nursery, changed your, ta- your child's diaper, you made sure the clips were even so it wouldn't pinch, made sure the ruffles were nice and out so, you know, it's all good, button up the onesie again, and just as you lay your child down, poo explosion. Feels like you're digging a hole and filling it back in. I imagine there are folks here that you've been praying for loved ones. You've been praying perhaps for years for loved ones, and it seems like, if anything, they're farther from God today than they were when you started. Feels like you're digging holes and filling them back up. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that the Apostle Paul uses the word labor. He says, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You see, as human beings, we were created to do good works in this world. We were created to reflect God's image, to fill the earth, and to steward it. But as a consequence of the sin of our first parents, that work was cursed. The ground under our feet was cursed. And so now, when we go to do gardening, thorns, thistles, and weeds pop up. Now when we go to work, colleagues let us down. Our managers give us unrealistic deadline. When we get home, emails follow us, even into our bed, because our smartphone is right there. Or perhaps for others of us, we wish we could have a job, but we're currently underemployed. Work has moved from a joy to being a toil, a labor. And I think if work was easy, Paul would not have commanded us to be steadfast and immovable. And so in those moments when our work feels like vanity, when it feels like we're digging holes and filling them back in, how can we be steadfast, immovable? Well, the Apostle Paul to us would say two things. Firstly, put down your roots deeply into the truths of the resurrection. And secondly, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Let's look at each of those briefly. So firstly, putting down roots in the resurrection. Now, remember at the beginning, we said everything Paul's telling us here is based on what came before. That's what the word therefore is there for. And so Paul is telling us we need to remember that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is going to raise us again, that Jesus is going to come back and make everything sad in this world come untrue. And if our roots go down deep into those truths— we can withstand the storms of this life. Last week, I found myself spending an hour on YouTube watching videos of tornadoes, as one sometimes is wont to do. And I was amazed watching these tornadoes that they would, you know, move through a barn, rip it up like it was nothing. They would rip up telephone poles and chuck them around like they were nothing. They would roll cars over like they were toys. But I was also struck at how certain trees handled the tornado as it passed over them. These trees were bent. They were tossed this way and that way. They were stripped of their leaves. Branches broke off of them. But at the end, when the tornado passed, it was still standing. It was bent. It was gnarled. It was weathered. It was beaten. But it was alive. 
And the Apostle Paul tells us this, that when the storms of life come, when your work feels like vanity, when your computer crashes, when everything's going wrong, if your roots are deeply embedded in the truth of the resurrection, you will be weathered, but you will stand firm. Secondly, Paul tells us that we should know that in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. I want to talk again about that conference I attended, um, where you remember the one the, where the person speaking said that the only three things which last forever are God, His Word, and the souls of men and women. You know what really bothered me about that? I was sitting in a room of about 150 students, most of whom were studying for professions which aren't specifically ministry related. I was surrounded by friends who were going to move on to become teachers business people, web developers, nurses, all kinds of professions. And the idea that the only three things which last are God, his word, and the souls of men and women invalidated their work. The implication was that if you choose to spend your life as a landscaper, you have wasted your life. Your work is in vain. Of course, unless you make a lot of money and give it all away to missions. Or unless you go to work every day with the goal of explicitly evangelizing the person in the cubicle next to you. Those are the only ways for your work to have any lasting significance. But friends, I want to tell you, that main session speaker was wrong. It's wrong to say the only things which will last are God, his word, and the souls of men and women. In fact, if we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the body? Your bodies will last forever. Your resurrected body will last into eternity. Later in the passage, Paul tells us that Christ himself has been raised as a first fruit. Christ is going to return to this world and renew this world. This world, this cosmos, is going to last into eternity. Last week, my brother Jeff, Pastor Jeff, was preaching on the relationship between our current bodies and our resurrected bodies. And he explained to us that The relationship between your body right now and your resurrected body is like the relationship between an acorn and an oak tree. There's discontinuity, yes, but there's also continuity. And the same is true for this created world. God's not going to throw out this created world. He's going to transform it and renew it. And the same is true for the fruit of your labor. God's not going to throw out your life's work. He's going to transform it. He's going to renew it. I'm persuaded that in the new creation, there will be a place for Handel's Messiah. There will be a place for the works of Shakespeare. I'm persuaded that in the new creation, there will be a place for the beautiful architecture of the Sydney Opera House. I'm persuaded that in God's God's new creation, that the loving bond between parent and child will continue. There's a Christian scholar and pastor, um, Bishop N.T. Wright, who said, I think he really explained this idea quite eloquently and beautifully in his book, Surprised by Hope. 
And so, Ryan, I'm going to make you work for it today. Will you come back up and help me reading um, this quote by N.T. Wright? Okay. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures. And of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed which spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world. All of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation which God will one day make. That is the logic of the mission of God, God's recreation of his wonderful world, which has begun with the resurrection of Jesus and continues mysteriously as God's people live in the risen Christ and in the power of his spirit. Means that what we do in Christ and by the spirit in the present is not wasted. What you do today, this week, and with your life matters. It matters. The songs that you sing, the art that you produce, the justice that you advocate for, the time you spend with your child doing crafts or wrestling, these things matter. They will last into God's eternity. And so I'd like to close by speaking to those of you in the room who perhaps you're on a faith journey right now, maybe you are exploring Christianity. I imagine that you would agree with what I said at the beginning, that your life and your work matter. But I want to, what I would encourage you to consider is why do you think that is the case? If Christ did not rise... If Christ is not returning to renew your work, it seems to me that Bertrand Russell is right. That our universe is heading towards total extinction, and we're just filling in holes and digging holes and filling in holes on the way. Could it be that the resurrection of Christ brings coherence to your own belief that your life and your work matter? And to those of you in the room who are Christian, I want you to hear loud and clear the words of Paul, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because Jesus lives, you are not digging holes and filling them back up. Because Jesus lives, your work and your life matter. Amen. We have a little bit of time for some Q&A. Um, and in particular, Ryan, I am curious if anyone knows how many birds you get in 40 days of Easter. Yes. Um, we, <laughs> I knew we, some of you would. <laughs> we have actually a couple people that okay. have submitted some numbers. Um, are they different or consistent? They, they are different. Okay, interesting. Uh, I will leave you to do the math 
later on. <laughs> um, we do have we do have a couple of questions. No, too, no, <laughs> give, give us the number first. Okay, all right, all right. Okay, so uh, this first person has said over 40 days of Easter, you would see we would receive 11,480 <laughs> gifts. Is that a flock? I think that's a flock of birds at that point. <laughs> um, a murder of crows. Another person has said 808. Okay. So. Uh, I think that's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for your answers. All right. Excellent. All right. Next question. Okay. Let's. Okay. Yeah. Here. Here we go. Um, how should we view good and charitable work done by non-Christians? Is oh. that also the work of the Lord? Great question. Um, I think an important criteria that the Apostle Paul would give. Um, and looking at those other verses, Colossians 3, verse 17, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, um, the work that's done in the name of the Lord, um, I think there is some importance there. There is a bit of mystery in this chapter, so I, in all honesty, I don't know entirely how God will use each and every work that someone does. We know as Christians that um, there's common grace, which means that um, God is going to work through people in the world who don't share our belief system, and he's going to do really wonderful things through them. And um, I, I don't think it's always up to us to answer the question of how God is going to treat each and every one of those actions. I think for, for me personally, it's enough to be satisfied that there's a future for my work in the Lord. Great. Um, another question. Many of us struggle with how distant God can feel. Why does God let us dig holes? Sorry, why does God let us dig and fill holes in this life? Mm, good question. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that experience is common for all of us, isn't it? No matter what your job is. And I, I do think that that's where the Christian understanding of sin comes to play. Um, often I think we can have a fairly shallow understanding of sin. We often hear that word and we think, oh, you know, sin is when I do bad things. The Bible's vision of sin is, is much more pervasive. Um, the understanding of the scriptures is that because of the rebellion of humanity against God, this world itself was corrupted. And our labor, which should have been joyful and um, shouldn't have felt like a curse, oftentimes does feel like a curse. So I think we need to, um, if, if you want to know more on that, I would encourage you to read Genesis 1 to 3. Great. And maybe uh, one more, Ryan. One more? Okay, sure. Um, let's see here. Um, so a, a question regarding the conference you were at. So uh, I'll just read this for you and you can answer as you want. Um, so just a thought. It's great to know that you were able to discern that the speaker at your conference had poor theology. Um, but do you think uh, that he gave that poor theology to other people there. Did you know right away it was bad theology, or did it take time? Oh, yeah, good question. Very personal. <laughs> mm. um, all right, well, I'll pull back the curtain. I felt uncomfortable, but I didn't know why. Um, I think it was over... Uh, I'll give another example, too. And you can sit down, Ryan. Okay. Actually, do you need to stay? Uh, do whatever you want, Ryan. I'll, I'll sit down, I'll come back. All right. <laughs> um... I think my theology on this topic was sharpened later uh, that year. I was at a, a church service sitting next to my dad. My dad's a chartered accountant. And the pastor got up, and as he was preaching, he told the congregation that the highest calling in life was to be called to Christian ministry. And I remember sitting there, 
looking at my dad, looking at the 99% of people in the congregation who weren't called to full-time, you know, being a pastor and evangelist. And I thought, what are you doing? How, can, how could you so deflate the value of what this congregation has to contribute? So I think it started more with me knowing in my gut something was wrong. And then later, as I studied the Bible and read verses like 1 Corinthians 15, 58, where Paul said, your labor in the Lord is not in vain, that my theology was sharpened. Um, I do think that that poor theology is, is, um, is pervasive in the evangelical Christian church. And so it's a bit of a hobby horse of mine, um, which is perhaps why I was uh, beating a dead horse a little bit in my sermon today. So um, thanks for pointing it out and happy to talk about that further. Ryan, I guess, are you coming back up? Wonder, wonder, all right, yeah, musical chairs for Ryan and I.